welcome to the Lifted Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Denham, and this is a place for us to talk about what we're doing every day to raise our vibration and understand ourselves more deeply as energetic beings and co-creators. We have such a special guest coming on the show today. You're going to be hearing from Dr. Aria, who is one of the UK's leading psychologists, and he specializes in behavior change and long-term health. He believes that everyone is connected by the same desire to live a healthy, meaningful, and fulfilling life, and that we're all trying our best with work and family and our health, but sometimes there are parts of life that just seem to be outside of our control. And that's where Dr. Aria really comes in with tangible tools and mindset shifts to help us overcome those more challenging times. And as a high-performance psychologist and mindfulness specialist, he's learned that our external reality is often a reflection of our own internal world. And he teaches that our minds are the most powerful tools we have to build long-lasting emotional resilience and physical health. And he's personally experienced, witnessed, studied, and researched the power of the mind to transform lives of his clients and also his own truly on such a deep level. And we really get into his story and something so deeply personal and painful that he went through over the last few years and how he worked his way through that and how he came back to a place of forgiveness, compassion, gratitude, and, you know, really tapped into that beautiful perspective of life. So he has so much wisdom to offer us. And I'm so grateful that he's here because I also just finished my certification as a behavior change specialist. So I've been so looking forward to speaking with somebody like Dr. Aria about the intricacies of that and what really happens when we're making a big change surrounding our habits and our routines and our lifestyles. He's truly an expert there. And uh, I really appreciate his vulnerability and his willingness to speak about challenging things that I know so many of us can relate to. So thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy that you've chosen to spend the next hour hanging out with us. And uh, while you're listening, feel free to connect with us on Instagram. Uh, He is Dr. Underscore Aria, and I'm at Helen Denham underscore. So let us know what you learn in the DMs. And uh, if you're feeling called to share this with a friend who might benefit from this information, that would be so beautiful and amazing. But thank you again for being here and enjoy this conversation. First question I always love to ask people is, how do you like to start your days off? Do you have a rising routine or ritual that you mm. go to? Well, if you're asking how I'd like to start my days, it'd probably be waking up with the ocean lapping close by next to a beautiful woman stroking my hair. <laughs> but I don't live by the sea and I'm not in a relationship, so that's not happening right now. Um, but I've actually been playing about with just waking up naturally. And so I've got like a, a backup alarm, but I'll have that which will start by playing music. So I've moved away from that harassing tone of any um, iPhone. And, uh, and I have uh, Debussy or Schubert or uh, Pachelbel waking me up, which is lovely. And then in terms of morning routine, the main things, I'll, I'll read an entry of my book, um, an entry of The Daily Stoic and another one called Wisdom for Life, which is a Buddhist philosophy by Aikida, and always like going for a walk. So there's a a local cemetery nearby. It sounds morbid, but it's incredibly peaceful and beautiful. The lights often shining, breaking through the trees, and just 
I try and actually give myself in the morning as much time as possible just to ease into the day before, before work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that you take a walk. I, I do that at night, but it actually mm. feels better when I do that in the morning, just to kind of let your thoughts run and, and get into your yeah. center. Yeah. yeah. The night's yeah. a beautiful time as well. I used to um, do quite a bit of running. I used to love running at night. Mm-hmm. There's almost uh, there's a completely different feeling. Uh, I used to feel like I was traveling faster. I used yeah. to sometimes look up at the stars when I was running. Yeah, it's just uh, it's a beautiful way to connect. I think just finding different ways of connecting to the present moment. Makes yeah, and just getting difference. outside as well, like yeah. getting fresh air and like just getting some sun on your face before you start the day is so important. Yeah, I think everyone's appreciated that. Um, you know, with the lockdown, with the restrictions. And just, just how important it is. I actually spent a month in Kenya in March with business and spending time on the savannah and being on safari in the Mara, I just, it just struck me that we're not built for cities. We didn't evolve in a concrete jungle. And it's amazing whenever you're spending time there, just how, in a way, it's like returning to a home that you haven't been to before. And just that sense of peace and ease. And there's a lot, lot of research to back that up, that anytime we see open, sprawling grasslands, we see green, we see sea uh, or water, it's actually very calming for the brain. So it brings a restorative effect to it. Oh my gosh, such a good point that you're making. Yeah. I mean, I'm, in, uh, I'm now in the hills of Topanga Canyon, but I just left New York City. Yeah. And, and I, I always thought about that, the way that a grid is set up. And like, we're kind of like little rats almost going through these mazes and it like compartmentalizes our head in such a funny way yeah. that's not secular it's very compartmentalized yeah. very logic based and uh, yeah. it has its place but I, I so agree with you like it's just it's not in tune with the natural world and it seems yeah. like so much of the anxiety in the world comes from that disconnect with with coming back to nature in a way um, yeah. I'm curious about this trip to Kenya what was that for so it was uh, with a, a Wi-Fi company that provide Wi-Fi to the different regions. Um, and I'll do a lot of training with C-suite execs or CEOs. And uh, it's also a really nice chance to just to travel. And it's a beautiful place. The people, the landscape, um, the wildlife. It was, um, I had no idea how stunning it was from the mountains up the north, you know, with Mount Kenya to the coastline, the Lamu and little remote islands like it's just stunning oh my gosh i guess it's not much in our mainstream we don't really see much of africa and kenya in our mainstream maybe that's why but that sounds amazing yeah yeah Yeah. so i will have given a little introduction about who you are kind of and what you're working on but i'd love to hear it from you um how you got into psychology and behavior change and what drew you to your profession in the first place Mm. well i've always been fascinated by the mind and how our own perception of reality has such a huge impact. Almost this idea that our external world is a reflection of our internal world. And I would just see it in in different areas. I started off in medicine, uh, but my father was then diagnosed with uh, grade four cancer and they only gave him about six months at the time. He had about a 20% chance of surviving. And so that really threw me and my girlfriend went through a traumatic incident and I felt incredibly lost and unsettled and and i remember being away actually my brother said look let's get away even just for 10 days and i was standing on a beach and the sun was shining and actually the sea was lapping at my feet and it was in beautiful surroundings 
and I was miserable. Yeah. And I thought, gosh, our, the external actually has so little to do with how we feel inside. And that really sparked a, a question, how can we cultivate inner peace or find it or connect to it? And that's something that drew me, drove me a lot in my early 20s. And that took me to Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy and, and down, a, yeah, down a very colorful scenic route to psychology, which is all about the mind and how you know, the way that we think has a profound influence on how we feel, but also what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people in our field or in healing or psychology, I think psychology work is healing work. Um, it's usually mm. because of a deep trauma that we go through and everybody goes through at some phase in their life, but it's often that we're pushed up against a wall or something really uh, painful comes through. Yeah. Um, so how did you go about dealing with grief for maybe the first time or your big instance with grief? Like what helped you through that? Well, I should add, thankfully, my father was incredibly fortunate and um, is still here today. Which oh is my phenomenal. gosh, amazing. Yeah, yeah just amazing. Mm-hmm. Complete blessing. Um, but part of it was understanding that in the world there is suffering. Mm-hmm. And I'd almost just bought into this idea uh, growing up that life is fair and good things always happen to happen to good people and that's mm-hmm. not the case yeah you know life can be brutal and hard and you can you will undoubtedly face suffering in life whether or not that is losing a loved one or being single when you want to be in a relationship or you're struggling to conceive or you lose your job or you're facing financial insecurity or you're facing discrimination or markets crash, pandemic strike, lockdowns implemented, it's going to happen. And, you know, throughout the age of history, that has always been the case. And so even just coming to terms with it's an inevitability, but also that pain is transient. It's impermanent. It's not everlasting. And often I think the mind tricks us into thinking I can't handle this. I can't take it. How long will this go on for? And a lot of the time I find it's about being present, appreciating that this moment, this too shall pass. And, and also on the belief that I've cultivated over years is that within the greatest source of suffering can come your greatest source of strength and courage and growth. Mm-hmm. And, and what's fascinating is that some of the most difficult times of my life have been a new source of deep emotional growth, spiritual growth, appreciation, compassion, love. It shifted me in a trajectory, which I'm so grateful for now. So despite what happens to you, it's this idea that all will be well, all will be well. And not only that, but that you have everything that you need within you to deal with that present moment. You have within you the courage and the patience and the love and the strength and the wisdom. And it's about finding that and connecting with it. Mm, Yeah, so well said. And do you think that comes from your studies of Buddhism and your spiritual path in that way? Or what cultivated that 
original trust and strength? I think the ori- originally it was my faith in, in God. Um, so my mother's Christian, my father's, uh, we grew up with Islam and, and I was taught that religions are essentially different paths to the same profound truths that are at the heart of all major religions are teachings of love and understanding and forbearance and, and connection and shared humanity. And depending on where you happen by the accidents of birth to grow up or what culture you grew up in, you'll have ascribed often to that religion or not. And so my own conception of God is different maybe to the traditional Abrahamic view of God. I see essentially in a philosophical term, it's called panentheism, that everything's a reflection of God. Everything we see is a reflection of essentially a deeper energy, which force of evolution, which is where we are and, and who we are. And so I've always had this faith and trust that the world is unfolding as it should. Mm. Even if it doesn't feel like it, it's unwanted, it's unexpected, it uh, goes against the way that I viewed life unfolding. It's just that pain arises when our expectations of reality clash with reality itself. Mm. And reality always wins. It's rooted in the real. And so, yeah, I'd say it's my faith that that has played a huge part, Buddhist teaching, Buddhist philosophy, and then the study of psychology. And when you look at psychology, it's a relatively young discipline. It's about maybe 150 years old, I think. And it, and it grew out of philosophy. And so whenever you go back, when you, go, when you look at cognitive theory and you go back to the beginning, it stemmed out of stoicism and stoic philosophy. When you look at mindfulness-based practices, they grew out of often Buddhist or other contemplative traditions. So I always find that whenever I go back to the original sources, that's really where it's richest. Yeah, so true. I was uh, just studying to become a behavior change specialist. And Mm. as I was going through this very, you know, structured program, I was like, we're all saying the same thing here. This is like a mindfulness <laughs> practice. It's just packaged like, you know, yeah. like, you know, school and, and the, the system yeah. is structured. But I was like, we are all saying the same thing. It's about coming back uh, to that place of mindfulness and inner peace and yeah. presence. It's just packaged differently. It's so funny. Yeah. Um, what did, you just said something so profound to me um, that pain is when your expectations meet reality. And it's yeah. like, that was just really powerful. It's like, how can we shift out of, I guess, expectations that we create and just come back into the moment so that we don't, you know, set ourselves up for such tragedy almost. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's something that I go to, I go to often. It's when my expectation of reality crashes with reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the mind is an astonishing evolutionary achievement in terms of its ability to evaluate and assess, draw on the past and predict about the future. And it's con- constantly consistently you know creating images and ideas about what will happen and a lot of the time it's incredibly useful but when we get thrown a curveball it can really throw us off guard especially if we've bought into that expectation strongly Hmm. or we begin to link our identity to that expectation yeah but in a way it's probably the most profound and poignant way to wake up 
anytime there's been deep pain in my life, it's been a way to wake up and see reality. And actually, when you live in reality, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Because reality is continually flowing. It's, it's, a, um, it's like a river of, of uh, you know, of momentarily arising moments. But it's when we try and hold on to it that we suffer. You know, it's like looking at the Niagara Falls. We can't take a cup and, and scoop out the water and then say, oh, I want to hold on to this moment. It's no longer than a stream or a falls or a river. We have to, in a way, flow with it. And, and I think the more that we can be open to what life is bringing us, the more freedom and liberation and ease we'll experience. And in a way, it's beginning to ask this question instead of if you're asking whether or not you believe in God or not, or the universe or life, but you know, life, why is this happening to you? It's more about asking life, where are you taking me? And being to be open to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well said. You know, I'm thinking about <clears throat> co-creating with people and how our expectations, which are, you know, essentially part of our ego, which you touched on. It's like, it is necessary to survive in this world, to have an ego, to have certain expectations, to even function. It's when it becomes so inflated that we usually get into trouble, right? Yeah. Um, how do you enter you know, sacred relationships and partnerships with people like getting married, for example, where you, you are completely cohabiting, co-creating with them Mm. and, you know, putting your heart and your vulnerability on the line. Like how do you live incorporating another person, you know, into your life like that? And what happens when things go awry? Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, This is something which I've changed my my views on in the last couple of years i think the way that i used to approach love was that love is about loving the other and placing that person uh their interests on the same level if not higher than and it's about being a unit almost two becoming one it's like they're intimately interlinked Mm -hmm. and I've actually now moved to a, to a different view of love, which is, is still holding another person uh, with love and value and respect, but it, there's a lot more independence. It's not actually fusing with that individual. And it's more like, um, there's a poem by Rumi on marriage, which I'd really recommend um, people to read, but it's, it's two people, two oak trees, which are growing close together but they're two separate trees. It's having two different cups and, and sharing what's in your cup, but still having your own cup. And I think a lot of the time what happens is we get lost in the, in the other person. And not only that, but we begin to change who we are in order to fit with what the other person wants or expects. And along the way, we can often lose ourselves. And ironically, what might have kept two people together in the first place who created that fire or chemistry gets lost over time at the same. Um, so I would say, yes, it's about, it definitely is about, for in, in my perspective, about nurturing someone else's emotional and spiritual development and, and being a support whenever you can, but not taking responsibility for it. And at the same time, your responsibility being to love yourself. Mm. Mm-hmm. and grow in love and understanding and understand what your path is and 
and staying focused on that too, because I think whenever we grow as individuals, the people around us benefit from that as well. Yes. I, you're reminding me of my aunt always used to say, your partner should be the cherry on top of your dessert, not like every meal of yeah. your day. Like there yeah. is something wonderful to come home to and a treat and like, you know, something wonderful to add to your life. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we, we often look to things, Esther Perel says, we often look to our partner to become our best friend and our lover and our lifelong companion and our teacher and potentially even our parent and our cohabitor and our co-business partner or and, 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 and it's a lot. Mm -hmm. That's a high expectation. You know, the Buddha says when you appreciate the scent of a thousand roses, then when one isn't in your life, you don't notice that difference as much. And I think a lot of the time we almost invest too much or we attach our happiness to another person. We think that I need this person to be happy. Whereas whenever we can be fully open and fully loving, I truly believe that you can have meaningful connections and share that love. And I'm not talking about in a sexual sense. I'm talking about in a, um, in a sense of awareness and, and love. I'm all, almost defining as seeing someone as they are and fully accepting them and, and recognizing that and respecting that. Mm -hmm. And you can have all these different meaningful connections so that you're less dependent on that person emotionally. Mm -hmm. How do you perceive like long-term partnerships now? Like what is your idea of marriage and our kind of, you know, formal idea of marriage now that we find one person, we stay with them for the rest of our lives? Because I think most of us are, or a lot of us are understanding that that might be not very realistic. I think my grandparents have yeah. been the only people I've ever seen to really maintain that long relationship. But uh, yeah. you know, all of my friends' parents, my own parents went through infidelity and uh, divorce. And like, you know, what is your view on marriage in general now? So my parents are still together and they've been together for over 40 years. And so, yes, I viewed marriage as a lifelong commitment and and one that if you stay true to each other can unfold that way. Um, and then I was married and I took the vows very seriously. Um, and, oh, and my expectation was that, you know, if someone had asked, I would have said, I bet my bottom dollar, uh, well, bottom pound in the UK, <laughs> that I'll be with this person for the rest of my life. I had no doubt, none. Mm -hmm. If you want certainty, it's the, it was one of the things I was most certain about. We'll be together until one of us dies. And that turned out not to be the case. And so we were together for 10 years, uh, married for five, and that ended very abruptly two years ago. And so really then that shifted my views on, on marriage, but also on that a marriage is only as strong as the commitment of the people within it. And that actually I took for granted and assumed that just because you were married, it meant that you had a stronger bond, but actually that bond can be broken. That trust can be broken. Um, it's much more about, I think, doing that inner work and that inner understanding so that you reach a level spiritually and emotionally where you understand the actions you're taking and the consequences of those actions and 
you're willing to find a way forward. And so I've even, you know, begun to look at marriage because I just had, I bought into this paradigm that you meet someone, you date, you live together, you get engaged, you get married and you have children. Yeah. But it's a social societal construct. There's nothing in nature that says that it has to unfold that way. And, and even when we look at the purpose of marriage, it's changed every century from being about economic ties to um, about legacy with families to becoming religious and sacred. Uh, and it's, it's completely evolved in itself. And now I think people are questioning it more and looking at just because I'm with someone, I'm not married to them. Does that mean that my relationship is any less serious? Does that mean that I'm any less committed? And I truly believe that now it's about finding what works for you. And I think that will be different for almost everyone. For some people, it'll, it'll work and they'll find a way through. For others, it's their idea of a living nightmare. So I think more and more it's about questioning what society is giving us, questioning our own assumptions and going back to first principles and trying to understand what is it that I want from this relationship or this business or this uh, way of living and understanding what's at the core of that and seeing well, what would suit me most. And that also might change over time. Mm, yeah, it's so interesting to talk about this with you. I was just, I've been reading this book called Sapiens and they touch on marriage a little bit and how it, it was political in the beginning um, and mm -hmm. as a form of hierarchy kind of synergy and uh, connecting the lands together. And uh, that, that in itself just shifted my whole perspective yeah. around why yeah. we do this. So it's really interesting to talk with yeah. you about that. You know, you're and, the third person this week that said to me, have you read Sapiens or you need to read Sapiens? And you have it? Uh, I still haven't, no. Oh, that's fine. I was like, he must have read it if you say that. Oh my that's God, also, like I it. Did an, I did another podcast. A number of people said, you must, you know, you must have read Sapiens. They're like, no, I'll, I'll need to check it out. They're like, well, that's it's very similar to what you're saying. Yeah, well, clearly you've, you've studied history a little bit and are, are familiar with it because it's just an amazing book about the evolution of our species. And it just yeah. like puts us in this bird's eye perspective and view of like, whoa, like, we're changing really fast and everything mm -hmm. we understand to be true is like you're saying a social construct to one degree yeah. or another, like even yeah. just transitioning from being nomadic people to being stationary in cities is like kind of unnatural to how we are, which is yeah. really funny. It's only been 10,000 years that we've actually yeah. stopped and, uh, you know, been in the one place in terms of agriculture and water supply and then, and then having land and having ownership. Yes. And so, yeah. Yep. I think going back to evolutionary principles explains a huge amount of human behavior from my perspective. It's often one of the models I'll go back to first. Hey there, just popping in for a second to tell you about my new offering, Cultivating Confidence. This is an online self-mastery course that I've been developing over the last few months, but I honestly feel like I've been working on this for my entire life. <laughs> and I'm so happy and I'm so grateful to be at a point now where I'm really able to share this with the women in my community. So it's an online go-at-your-own-pace course with eight modules, and it includes EFT tapping, guided visualization meditation, 
meditations, affirmations, transformational workbook prompts, goal setting, developing a daily practice, and so much more good stuff. I've really included actionable steps in every single module for you so that you are really doing the work. And you're going to discover a lot about yourself through doing this. It's really amazing what happens when we invest in ourselves and show up for ourselves. It's a way of communicating to ourselves that we love ourselves and that we believe in ourselves. So if you're ready to look into this and you're ready to take the next step and really step into the next version of yourself and align with that highest version of yourself, this might be just the thing for you. So you can go to HelenDenham.com to check that out and you'll see a link for the course and let me know if you have any questions, but thank you so much for listening and back to our conversation. Yeah. So I want to dive into this with you as well in terms of how you work with your clients and what most people come to you for help with. Um, is it mostly like around weight loss or, or, you know, mindset shifts? Like what are people usually struggling with when they come to you? So initially, uh, a couple of years ago, my work was predominantly sustainable weight loss. So I did my doctoral research in the psychology of not only losing weight, but maintaining it, which is often what people struggle with a lot more. And in the last couple of years, so that's shifted. And so I'll work in the umbrella term of high performance. And so as individuals who are often at their top of the game professionally, uh, it could be in the creative industries, um, financial sector, um, yeah, the arts. And often what happens is they've achieved what society says will lead to happiness and fulfillment. They have material wealth, status, prestige, often a huge amount of responsibility, high demanding work. But then they wake up one day and it's almost as if, is this what it's all about? there might be a gnawing sense of discontent or a void or their relationships are suffering and there isn't physical and emotional intimacy with their partner anymore. They're like best friends living in a house yeah. or they are struggling to speak their truth in, in numerous ways, often with the people closest to them or their health has fallen off the radar or there are fears and anxieties and self-doubts which are holding them back professionally or they have this idea of an imposter syndrome and so when you look at all of that though it goes back to often our mindset so at the heart of it the core of it i'm working with mindset with helping people to better understand their own psychology and develop more self-awareness so that they can build a more resilient mindset mindset and then be in a place where they can then take more effective action. What are some specific tools that you use with your clients to help them gain that self-awareness? Like, you know, is it journaling? Is it giving them a meditation practice? Like what actually starts to shift for them? Yeah. So predominantly I use black magic. Um, <laughs> classic, yes. Classic, the old classic black magic. Yeah. Um, there are actually chocolates in the UK that were called black magic that just popped into my head. Um, <laughs> they weren't very nice. Uh, at the heart of it, it's developing self-awareness. It's often becoming more conscious of that inner narrative that we have. So we all carry in our heads, a little voice which will accompany us during the day. And I'll make judgments and predictions about 
who we are, other people, and the world. Now, the mind, though, has evolved with a negativity bias. And so, like we're talking about with evolutionary principles, that came from a fear-based survival mechanism. Our ancestors, the more fearful they were, the more likely they were to survive. If they were worried about running out of water or food or were terrified that rustling the bushes would mean that it's a predator there, they would continually be hypervigilant, scanning the environment for danger and staying alive. Great from a survival point of view. Terrible from a happiness point of view. And so this voice, though, one of the biggest illusions we have is that that voice is who we are. And we buy into it. We buy into the thoughts that we have. We buy into the stories which are narrated about who we are and the way that the world is. And it's a little bit like watching a uh, often horrendous horror movie. And it's fear-based, but... If you buy into it, your heart rate's gonna go up, your respiration rate will go up, you'll be feeling terrified. It's about taking a step back and seeing this is just a film, it's a story, it's a narrative, it's something my mind's coming up with. It's not rooted in the real, it's rooted in my mind. It's, you know, an analogy would be, it's the difference between the sky and the clouds. You are the sky, your thoughts are the clouds. Sometimes they're large and foreboding, gray and dark. Sometimes they're light and wispy and float by quickly. But you're not the clouds, you're the sky, you're the container, you're you're the observer. And so the more that we can move into a place of observing what arises and seeing that just because my mind says it doesn't mean that it's necessarily true, we can create a little bit of space. And when there's space, that's where the peace and the ease lies. And then we can have more control over our actions. So rather than reacting out of the emotion, which is what a lot of people do, and when we act from a place of fear, anger, hurt, resentment, any of these things, we tend to make a situation worse. Mm-hmm. It's about finding that calm within the storm and then moving into a place where we can then take much more effective action. Yeah. So it sounds like you start with them in kind of a spiritual mental health, you know, container where they're really coming back to who they are and their essence and tapping into their essence before they start to approach their mindset. Because inevitably, once we start to come back in touch with that, our thoughts will change. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Do you find that? I mean, I'm also thinking about kind of neural reprogramming and, and, you know, the constant thoughts that we have are forming kind of like habits and and circuits in our mind that do take some, you know, reprogramming. And do you ever look at subconscious work or do you, do you focus at all on that to help people reprogram in a sense? So the way that I'll approach it is that the mind has a mind of its own. And until you're aware of it, essentially, it's subconsciously directing you. When you become aware of it, what you're aware of, you can then begin to have an influence over. When you're aware of the mind and how it works, you can then, in a way, take that control. But it's not by forcing it. It's by acknowledging what something is and accepting it and letting go of it, not holding on to it. Mm -hmm. So any thoughts and emotions that arise, it's not about rejecting them, renouncing them, denying them, negating them, trying to avoid them or bury them. And the same with feelings, because whenever we do, 
they tend to actually grow in strength. What we renounce, we give more power to. And then often they come up in different ways. It's then, you know, the person that snaps about one thing when it's not about that. Or then, yeah, it's passive aggressive or tries to control in a way to satisfy a deep insecurity. And so it's bringing the light of awareness to what is happening within you. Mm-hmm. And it's appreciating that we're all human. This is just the way that the human mind has evolved. You're not broken. You don't need to be fixed. It's just an evolutionary artifact. But until we understand the way that the mind works, we're at its mercy. We essentially become a slave to the mind as opposed to being its master and seeing that the mind is the greatest tool we've ever been given. But it's not who we are. It's just a tool that we have. And what's happened is the cart has come before the horse. And now it's about being the horse and beginning to lead the mind. And when you do, I think it's one of the most self-awareness is one of the most worthy endeavors anyone can ever embark on because it just affects every moment and every aspect of your life. Mm -hmm. And it makes a lot of sense that people struggling with disease or or weight or whatever, it's all connected. It's like, I always think about disease as being dis-ease, like yeah. our bodies are manifestations of our beliefs and our, you know, the way that we're thinking and approaching the world. Absolutely. Yeah. The problem isn't out there. A lot of the time we blame something external. We think food's the problem or the person is the problem or work is the problem. Often the problem is actually our relationship to it. Now, does that mean that there is that there isn't injustice or cruelty? No, 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 there is. And we can address that, but we'll be in a far more effective place to address it when we're not trying to change it to make ourselves feel better. Mm-hmm. We're actually coming from a place of love and compassion and understanding. And sometimes love can, love can be hard. It's not about... Uh, putting up with injustice we can address it in a very hard way compassion can be hard you know the surgeon that has to operate is very compassionate but he's got to roll up his sleeves and take up a scalpel and do what he has to do and so when though we come from a place of love rather than a place of fear or hatred we'll know exactly what to say and what to do in that moment which will be moving or effective or or just be applying the right level of pressure or approach mm-hmm. yeah what you're saying is reminding me of the narrative around getting out of the victim mentality as well and taking responsibility for our own well-being and when you talk mm-hmm. about love and compassion and coming from that place it it sounds like you know a form of empowerment putting yourself in the driver's seat essentially and making a choice completely you know, whenever a couple of years ago, when my marriage fell apart and there was um, infidelity involved. And uh, one thing that I was so clear on is I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim and I'm not going to become a victim. Something has happened in life that is painful and I wish hadn't happened, but it's life unfolding. And Actually, my power lies in now processing that pain, accepting it, growing from it, and becoming a better person through the process. I was determined I'm not going to let this take me down. I'm not going to become 
bitter and jaded and distrustful and think that you can't trust women or you're going to be hurt or you'll be alone or whatever it might be. I'm not going to buy into those narratives that the mind comes up with. Actually, this is going to be one day when I look back, it'll be so strangely to say, in a way, the best thing that's ever happened to me. Mm, yep. and, and I love my life now. Like I love the, the journey that I've been on and the growth which has come from that. And I wouldn't change it because I, I'm in love with the journey that I'm on and, and it is worth that temporary emotional pain. Mm. Yeah, what did you just say? Um, I'm having like a little mind blank here. Um, mm. You were talking about not becoming a victim. Oh, but distrusting women. I, okay, that mm. is like so huge to me because I think right. that's where most people get stuck with heartbreak yeah. is like learning how to trust people again because you put your whole heart on the line and you are cracked open for this person. And um, I mean, did you just cut, how did you, did you have to learn to trust again or were you just already in a place spiritually that you could say, I'm okay. Like this is not going to ruin all of my relationships down the line. So part of the work that I do with clients is I'll say, look, we're going to separate reality from the layers of perception and the layers of perception is anything the mind adds onto it. And, and where I am on my journey, I'm very aware of what my mind comes up with. I've got a very different relationship to my mind. I'll see it and I'll notice it, but I really won't buy into it anymore. I almost treat it like a child. Like it's, um, it's just the mind hurting and it's not necessarily true. So in that, in, in part of that growth, it's about living in reality. And I'd say that in reality, things are a lot better, you know, a little bit, a little bit like the matrix. Um, now the reality is one person who I was with, uh, had an affair. That one person isn't womankind. It's not the next person that I meet. It's just one person. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to extrapolate and expand and take a generalization from a single incident. And part of that is um, seeing people for as they are. And a lot of the time we hold on to, not only we hold on to uh, the people, but we hold on to an image of that person. We often have an image of who that person is and, and they may change or, or grow over time. And w- one of the things that I see a lot of the time is people who are someone else's end of the relationship, they're holding on to that hopeful, prejudiced, optimistic image of who that person is. Mm-hmm. And actually, sometimes we just have to see reality for what it is. And when we live in reality, the people that are meant to be close to us come closer and the people who aren't move out of our lives. Mm-hmm. There are a few things I want to touch on here with you. Okay. When I first heard you talk about this story on Steven's podcast, one of the most empowering things that you said was that you actually had compassion for your ex-partner when you guys separated, you were able to come back after letting yourself truly feel, you know, your emotions, but you actually came to a place of compassion for her, which mm-hmm. I thought was just so amazing. And how did you get to that place? Like, you know, even that is a step beyond just, you know, accepting and, and, uh, you know, to have compassion is next level. Mm. For me, compassion comes through understanding. 
and understanding comes from a place of love. And when there's understanding and love, there's no judgment. And when there's judgment, there's no understanding or love. Now it has to come at the right time. Initially, there's naturally there's an overwhelming amount of pain and suffering. Uh, but I've also lived by a principle that anything that I feel is within me, it's my responsibility. You didn't make me feel that way. Mm. It has arisen within me. And so it's not even your fault that I feel this way. I'm not going to blame you. You're not the enemy. You're not, you know, someone else could have been in my situation. And if they wanted to be out of the marriage, could have felt a huge sense of relief. For them, it could have been like, ah, oh, phenomenal. You've given me a get out of jail free card. So same event, different reaction. I was very aware that what I'm feeling is within me and I'm not going to blame her for it. Can I look at the actions objectively and say, yes, they go against my ideas of morality or the agreement that we'd made going into the relationship? Absolutely. You know, I'm not, I'm not condoning it, but part of it is, is accepting it and knowing that we're all trying our best. Mm -hmm. She was trying her best. And whenever I moved to a place of understanding, it was seeing that at the heart of, of most actions that we consider to be bad or we judge to be wrong is often fear. Mm -hmm. She was afraid. She was scared. We'd moved into a place in a relationship where we had lost that physical intimacy. And she, for whatever reason, on her own, through listening to someone else, thought that that's the way that it was going to be. And there was no way. And she, I imagine that she also thought, gosh, in the next 20, 30, 40 years, how can I be in a sexless marriage? Yep. And so naturally at that point, there's different routes. You know, you can try and work through it with the person, through openness, through trust, through communication, through pure vulnerability and talking about the things that we weren't talking about completely openly with each other or you can find that excitement that thrill through having an affair and every action that we take i would say that whenever we take it in in that in that way where it causes destruction we're not acting from a place of awareness we're not acting from a place of love we're acting from a place of unawareness essentially we're sleeping from ignorance and often from fear and so when you when I understand that it's it's difficult to move to a place of judgment when someone's just scared. Yeah, I mean you're describing an incredible and amazing act of forgiveness there. I think that we can all relate to and we can pick up people in our lives that might need our forgiveness. Like I'm just thinking about my parents, you know, getting divorced and my mother cheating on my dad. And like, it took mm -hmm. me years to get over that. And I think so many people lived that story and lived that reality as well. And the transformation and the healing came with her exactly as you're describing when I was like, she was just doing the best that she could. Yeah. She wasn't yeah. happy. Like it's, it's okay. Yeah. Like people aren't perfect. And, uh, yeah. you know, we're doing our best we can with what we have and trying to survive and happiness is directly tied to that. So yeah, that was just a huge weight lifted off of me and something that, you know, we can take into every other relationship, I think, and just practicing that exercise of forgiveness, because then, you know, we come into that place within ourselves so that when we, we hit a wall and we're imperfect, like we can forgive ourselves too, which is a big part yeah. of being a human. Completely. Mm -hmm. And there 
comes a point, I think, where, and it might sound hard, but we have to ask ourselves, how long do I want to hold on to this for? Mm-hmm. Because whenever we don't forgive, I mean, the irony is forgiveness, the person who benefits the most is the one who's giving the forgiveness or releasing the hurt or the anger, the resentment or whatever might be there. They're the person, you know, we haven't communicated really in two years. We haven't spoken in two years. Um, we're not part of each other's lives. And so it'd be fair to say that on, on, a, on, a, on, on some level that she just wouldn't be affected by it. You know, she has her new partner. Um, they have a child together um, and are living their lives. And so the forgiveness actually is, or I'll put it another way, the lack of forgiveness is a little bit like picking up a hot coal to throw at someone. All we do is burn our hands. <laughs> it's like saying, you know, I'm going to punish you by punishing myself. Mm-hmm. And I think when we take responsibility for how we feel and we, and we see truly that a lack of forgiveness is it's something that we choose. Mm. And, and I'm not saying that it needs to be forced, that it needs to be rushed. I wasn't going to try and move to that place on the first day. But... I was in the beginning, it's just about experiencing the pain, experiencing the emotion, not holding on to it, letting it flow through, letting it pass, and then reaching a place of understanding. And then after understanding, realize, okay, I want to fully release any hurt that I have and just come from a place of love again. Mm-hmm. And so we can ask ourselves how long, and look, there's no right or wrong answer. You want to hold on to it for a year, two years, five years, 20 years. That's up to you, but know that it's up to you. And, and all you need though is a willingness, a willingness to discover something new and a willingness to be open. And it takes time and it's a process, but we can absolutely reach that place. And that place I would say is beautiful where your light is heart, your light is heart, your heart is light. <laughs> and maybe your light is heart too uh-huh. actually and and you're not carrying any any baggage mm-hmm. you know it's like that line you're um you could fit through the eye of a needle yeah you, you have some great come. analogies over here <laughs> <laughs> these are all things i haven't heard yet i'm like yes um you know i i am thinking back to my own breakups and relationships and there's one mm-hmm. that i've particularly held on to or not up until now but it took me years to get over this this kind of heartbreak and it as I look back on it, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was really just my self-worth that was in question. But I kept having these incessant thoughts of like, you know, would I have been good enough now? Or like, you know, did you ever have Mm. these, you know, circulating loops that kept coming back about this split Mm. and this breakup that you were like, okay, I'm I'm ready to stop thinking about it. But like, it just keeps coming. Like, Mm. when did you feel like there was a point where that loop started to just cease if Mm. it did, or was it gradual? So in terms of that sort of evaluation, so another principle that I I work from is that anything that anyone says or does tells you nothing about you. It only tells you about them. And we can apply that every day throughout the day. Anything anyone says or does. So imagine if, you know, my wife at at the time has an affair and she became pregnant with his child. That doesn't mean 
that even if my mind, now I noticed my mind on a few occasions going into, um, this is your fault. Could you have prevented it? Could you have done more? Uh, or the statements, you could have done more, you could have prevented it. Um, or am I man enough? Am I valuable enough? Am I worthy enough? Uh, how can someone treat another person with such a lack of respect? Anytime I notice that, I instantly notice, look, that's my mind. That's not me. Mm. And that's my mind trying to make it about me. But it's not about me. And sometimes I would even just say, no, we're not going down that road. We're not going down the road of, this is your fault. Yes, you played a part in the dynamic out of which the actions arose. And I take, you know, I'm an equal dancing partner in that and I've learned so much from it. But in terms of the action, that's not on me. I'm not picking that one up. Mm -hmm. And it's not because of who I am that someone else did that. And so what it tells me is what she's thinking, what she's feeling, the place that she's in. If we have an argument with someone, it's not about you. It tells you what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what it's triggering within them. And so I'm very fortunate that this happened at a stage where I'd been pursuing this, this path. And, and for me, it's a path moving towards liberation, ultimate freedom, presence. And so it was being able to see that and, and not going down those roads and just continually letting go, continually letting whatever arises, I'm not going to fight. Mm-hmm. Whatever emotion comes up, I'm not going to push away. I didn't want to be someone who two years down the line or five years or 10 years, this stuff comes back up when I'm in another relationship or have children of my own or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So it's just like allowing it to flow. And yes, it's, it's painful. I mean, I cried for hours every day for months. Because mm-hmm. there was a lot of feeling and connection and commitment there. So there was a lot of emotion, but it passes and it gets easier. And it's knowing it's just one moment at a time. All I need to do right now is deal with this one moment. And then, yeah, one day you wake up. <laughs> well, in fact, I was, um, was going to say one day you wake up and you haven't cried that day. And then I had this this memory. I'd gone, I'd gone to a... Um, like a fitness class and uh and i think it was on at like i can't remember about one o'clock and so it was about two o'clock now and i thought oh my goodness this is phenomenal it's 2 p.m i haven't even cried i was like <laughs> this is it this is the day yeah and i was lying down and it was a blackout room and it was um they're playing music while the stretches came on and then cold plays fix you <laughs> And oh, for no. some reason, I just started blubbering like a baby. And I was that guy. How can you lying not? There doing a leg stretch, just like tears <laughs> coming through my face. Oh. I was like, oh, well, it's not today, but we'll see. It'll We're getting come. closer. We're yeah. <laughs> getting closer. <laughs> Plus the leg stretches. I keep talking about this with people, like how much yeah. energy we hold in the body and like how much a hip opener can explode like emotion. Oh, yeah. Are, like, sacral chakra it's our i mean our root chakra like where we're holding all of that safety and self-worth and like i can imagine the combination yeah. of all the things so i did so much walking during that time i would walk and cry and walk oh. and process like i would just walk, I'd walk to parks i would do like 20 30 000 steps a day just walking and allowing the movement helped me a lot yes yeah i was just and music actually movement movement and music helped a huge amount 
Totally. I was just thinking about walking as being um, literally a response to fight or flight. Like when we walk or we run, we're like allowing ourselves mm. to express the escape almost. So it's yeah, actually very calming and, and drinking water that actually yeah. recenters us and grounds us. But I'm so, I do the same thing. I talk to myself out loud. I was thinking, I was like, my neighbors are going to think I'm insane. Cause like whenever yeah. I'm working through an issue, I'm talking and I'm just, you know, it's such a great exercise to let yourself go, like leave your phone at home mm-hmm. and just walk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we, we can begin to build up that different voice where, like you're saying, we have that small self, that small inner critic or, or small voice within us that's linked to the ego. And again, part of waking up is seeing that that is not who you are. And we can actually, there's another space, there's that field of awareness where there's, it's just ultimate love and wisdom and compassion. Mm-hmm. And from there, there can be whispers which become a stronger voice of, of knowing. And, and it's connecting to that place and, 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 that, and that voice, which then I think ultimately can move you to a place of being invulnerable or indestructible or unshakable because no matter what happens, you know from that place that all is well and all will be well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you have an understanding, it sounds like, that the universe is working for you and not against you, and it's working on your behalf, which I think is so wonderful. I'm also curious about what your um, meditation practice actually looks like, if you have a meditation practice. Like, uh, what does it actually look like for you? So for me, I, for years, I, str- I would continually be trying to, to formally meditate and sit down in 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Um, but it often, it's never something that which naturally just flowed with me. And so then I let go of the expectation of needing to meditate. And now my meditation is probably a lot more moving. Mm-hmm. So um, Ashtanga Yoga uh, to walking, doing meditative walks, mm-hmm. um, even going to the gym, I often find quite meditative. It's essentially bringing, bringing my attention either to a single point, which I'll focus on, or the one which I gravitate towards hugely is that more expansive meditative state where you're just opening up your awareness to what arises. And I'll try and essentially, that's something which I'll try and do it in as many moments as possible. Whenever I'm speaking to you, I'm as aware of what you're saying as to what is coming up within me, thoughts or feelings or emotions. Um, particularly with my client work, it's, it's crucial that I pay attention to what they're saying, but it's imperative that I'm aware of what it's bringing up inside me because if I'm not aware of that, I'll be seeing through a lens or a filter and I'll be then influenced by my own feelings in in terms of what I say back. And so, yeah, it's for me, it's like a daily practice of just becoming more aware of what's going through my head and, and, and more and more the feelings in my body and, and connecting to more to that gut intuition as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can really relate to that. I mean, I was meditating and facilitating meditations for about a year and I would be sitting in meditation for like literally five hours a day. And, um, Wow. It was, I think it was a great, like almost monk kind of training for a while. But then when I got out of it, I was like, you know what? I think what I really need um, is to empty my mind and like just allow mm. the water to kind of like drain out of my cup. 
And I find it the same way. It's like walking will do that. It's just my time to empty my mm -hmm. brain and like let myself think because that's mm -hmm. usually what's causing any tension or anxiety is just like so much clutter that just needs to get yeah. cleared. Um, yeah. yeah. And I don't necessarily need to sit to do that. So I can totally yeah. relate to that. Absolutely. And even from a creativity point of view, uh, you know, the data shows that walking fires up the creative pathways in the brain um, by 60%. So wow. it's... Even anecdotally, you know, we, we know so many different inventors or artists who have the greatest ideas, not when they're sitting down, but when they're having a shower or they're going for a walk or they're somewhere else. Absolutely. You also mentioned music as being really healing for you. What were you listening yeah. to musically or how did music help you? Do you know, there's one song that I listened to and repeat that I could literally, I played honestly sometimes 34 times and it was called worry by jack garrett oh, i'm writing it down so yeah you should check it out um that really resonated with me there was another song that was big that was was it the lyrics that got to you like what was it about that song both the lyric the lyrics in the in the chorus and yeah and the, and the melody really connected mm -hmm. um i'm trying to think what else i'd listened to at that time uh there's another guy called A.D., I think it's called A.D. Suleiman. Mm -hmm. I listened to some of his stuff. Yeah. Um, a lot of recommendations from my brother. My brother Cyrus was my rock during that time. Um, absolutely phenomenal. Mm -hmm. As soon as it happened, um, he came up, jumped on a plane, didn't ask any questions. I, just, I called him up and was like, can you come up to Newcastle? He didn't ask anything, jumped on a plane, was there. And the next day we moved down to um, London and... Uh, yeah, I stayed on his couch and in his bed for six months. Oh my God. And he was just there every day, um, being a beautiful soul, so supportive uh, in multiple ways. And his flatmate, Jack, who was just, you know, suddenly had this new man in his house and embraced me with open arms. We created this little wolf pack. We're called the Bear Wolves because my brother's like a bear. Jack's like a wolf. So we're the Bear Wolves. And um, they were just so supportive and so loving that. Uh, yeah, they would give me different recommendations. They'll always be checking in on me. So that is I've got a lot to be grateful for. Siblings yeah. are a blessing. Like I, oh, I can't imagine not having my sister. I mean, it's just, mm. I feel like it's like this unshakable bond. Like we came into this world almost together in a way. Like, mm. and uh, that's such a blessing. And yeah, I didn't even think about that. Like you must have had to, like you were sharing a home, right? Like with your yeah, yeah. partner at the time. So your whole life yeah. got turned upside down. Yeah. yeah. You know, we had our home, our car, our dog, our, um, had our life. Yeah. Wow. So it just changed in an instant. Thank God you're, you had your brother in there. Mm -hmm. Jack is now living with his girlfriend. Um, and uh, yeah, Cyrus and I are living together and loving it. There's 11 years difference. I'm 37. He's 26. Mm -hmm. So we've had this relationship in the beginning growing up where I was often teaching him about the world and I just was so invested in, in his growth and development and just loved his company. So when he was seven and I was 18, we do Saturday night evenings together and, and really put a lot of love into him. And then when this happened, you'd often joke and be like, it's just payback time for me, bro. I'm here <laughs> for you. So, yeah. And now, yeah. And now we've got a really wonderful friendship. So Oh, that's awesome. I'm really happy to hear that. Thank you. Um, lastly, I wanted to ask you about your book, uh, A Mindful mm. Year. Can you tell us what is in the book and why you wrote it? 
Yeah, so it's a, it's a daily book, almost like a coffee book table um, or one for the bedside table where there's an entry for each, each day of the year. So you can just read it a few minutes in the morning or at night. And it's, yeah, 365 ways to find connection and the sacred in everyday life. And I co-wrote it with a very dear friend of mine, Seth Gillihan. Uh, we met at Penn and he was a professor there. Uh, I was studying there and we just really connected as two men, two friends. And it was actually, he came over for my wedding and it was the day after the wedding. And in that moment, we're going for a walk and everything just felt like it was in harmony. And we felt, we both felt so content and there was peace and just a joy and an ease to the moment. And it didn't matter what we were earning, what car we're driving, what's happening with our career or anything else. All of that we could just see was irrelevant, but we could also predict that in a month's time, the speed of the Wi-Fi or the person cutting off in the car would begin to, you know, grate on you. And, we'd be, and you could lose sense of reality or perspective. So we thought, how can we help each other? And so we wrote to each other every day for a year. I wrote to him on the first, he wrote back to me in the second, third, fourth, so on and so forth, uh, with a quote, a passage, and then an invitation for the day. And I was just very open and loving and honest, and we draw on philosophy or psychology or cognitive science, but then make it personal to help that person um, just have that companionship. And then ended up, turning in, you know, all the manuscripts and, um, and uh, published. So yeah, if people want to check it out, it can be a, a little way of uh, having me as a companion and Seth as a companion for uh, whatever days you want in the year. Wonderful. I love hearing about your actual like process that you guys were emailing back and forth every yeah. day for a so year. You wake up in the morning. Totally. Amazing. You wake up in the morning and be like, ah, what a, and his, you know, he's, beautiful writer and so i'd receive it and be like oh my goodness i'm so touched and moved i'm gonna have to like really raise my game here and then i'd be <laughs> that's awesome though because i'm sure you learned a lot about yourself and became a strong yeah. writer and thinker uh mm. because of that i bet he did too like that's so cool to, to co-write that's, that's a good yeah. idea very nice. just taking that time i think you know a lot of, a lot of people give away so much from because of love but also it's remembering that love has to start from within. It's something I've learned in the last couple of years. And it's not selfish to look after yourself. It's not selfish to carve out time for you. It's not selfish to actually love yourself and say, I love myself, even though it's seemed to be someone's, if someone said I'm in love with myself or I love myself to be like, that guy, so arrogant. <laughs> Well, it's funny because how can we even show up for a partner without okay. having been in that place already? And it even sounds yeah. like in your whole journey, um, you know, you already had shown up to that partnership as your own tree, as you were saying. Like, and is, do you think you had already shown up like that? Like you were already secure within yourself and you already loved yourself. So that? What, I, what I've learned was that I, I changed and lost who I was along the way to try and become the man that I thought she wanted. And I think she thought she wanted to. And so, and so I just began to lose my Arianess. You know, I'm mm -hmm. probably a bit more unpredictable and a bit more rogue and a bit more uh, spontaneous. And I just became, became a sanitized version of who I am. 
and and really when i looked at the, at the depth of that really was a fear of making someone else upset and that's the thing that i'm working on is is noticing that fear of someone else being hurt by what i say and seeing that actually there will be if i'm coming from a place of truth and love and compassion the other person may be upset but that isn't wrong if they're yeah. going to be upset they're going to be upset and and that's also their responsibility to work through sure if i get feedback i'll evaluate it in terms of you know what i'm saying why i'm saying it but i'll make that evaluation i won't just take on what someone else is saying mm -hmm. because they're hurt and so mm -hmm. I would say I lost myself and I changed along the way out of love in inverted commas when actually now I see love as reconnecting to rediscovering, owning who you are and you do you. I do me and you do you. And if, if, if your dance and my dance works together, beautiful. Let's keep on dancing. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, that's okay too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a powerful point that you make about taking responsibility for your own well-being and, uh, you know, putting that on other people too. Like everybody's responsible for that. I think what a lot of us are working through is setting um, energetic boundaries compassionately and yeah. being firm with where we stand and, and uh, what we're going to allow, but also doing it compassionately so that we're not intentionally or, you know, offhandedly hurting somebody, but also staying in our, in our truth and our power. So absolutely. it's a dance. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here. I've just learned so much from you and I'm inspired to check out your book and, and everything. I'm so grateful. Um, and so where can people connect with you and find you? You can find me on Instagram uh, at dr dot underscore a r i a um, or yeah, you can check out my website dr-aria.com. Beautiful. And um, feel free to send me a message um, or there's an email link on the website. And um, yeah, please feel free to be in touch. I'll put all of that in our uh, description too so they can check Perfect. you out. But thank you for being here again and uh, hopefully we'll stay in touch. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, thank you for um, the space and for uh, your insightful questions and um, beautiful uh, thoughts too. I yeah. loved it. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I'm so grateful that Dr. Aria was willing to come on and share his wisdom. So I hope you feel as inspired as I do. And you can find Dr. Aria again on Instagram at Dr. Underscore Aria. And I'm at Helen Denham underscore. And my website's HelenDenham.com. Uh, you can find past podcast episodes there, blog posts, links to my music, and you can sign up for my self-care Sunday newsletter if that sounds fun for you. It's just a little love in your inbox every week, which I have so much fun sending out. So again, thank you for tuning in, sending so much love to you. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day wherever you are, and I'll talk to you next Wednesday. Bye for now.